0: a proud
1: boy pleads guilty for the January 6th insurrection are more guilty pleas to come is the DOJ investigating Trump for taking top secret documents to Mar-a-Lago and eating them and flushing them down the toilet Steve Bannon's defense for contempt of Congress is obliterated by a federal judge Don Jr.'s text messages from November 5th just two days after the election we see him plotting to overturn democratic elections what's to come next new york attorney general tish james moves for a ten thousand dollar a day monetary sanction against donald trump in her civil fraud case the manhattan district attorney Alvin Bragg says, not so fast. I'm still investigating Trump. Is he full of shit? Katanji Brown Jackson becomes justice. Katanji Brown Jackson. The most consequential news of the week, broken down in ways that you can understand. If it's the weekend, it is legal. AF Ben Micel is joined by my co-host, Michael Popak, the Popokian leader. Popak, how are you doing?
2: I've been elevated to leader. I feel, I feel great. Thanks, Ben. I'm really looking forward to tonight. That, that was a rousing lineup, but we're going to do it all.
1: Let's get right into it, Popak. And of course you would be the Popokian leader. You are the Popokian. Let's talk about non-Popokians. Let's talk about the Proud Boys. It's a ridiculous name, number one. But let's talk about this guilty plea by one of their leaders, a leader of their North Carolina Chapter. It's just weird when you read about this too. Just the way they have these various like chapters and just their organizational. Well, it's structure. based on the
2: it's based on the KKK. The KKK had all of those types of grand wizards and chapters, and and they they stole a page from another racist, you know, historical racist group.
1: And so you have Charles Donahoe. He entered his plea at a virtual hearing in federal court this week. He was one of six senior Proud Boys who have been charged with conspiring to obstruct Congress's certification of Biden's election victory. He pled guilty to obstruction and a number of other counts. He was also among one of the first individuals to enter. The Capitol building. Now, this guilty plea, though we've talked about it before on this podcast, because people have been very down on Merrick Garland. It's taking too much time, but you know he talked. You know he started off with you know some of the lower level people. He's been working his way up. Um, now the interactions between these radical right extremist groups and radical right politicians is really what seems to be being probed here. Um, also this guilty plea by Charles Donah- Donahoe also starts getting the DOJ really focused on a lot of these other top level Proud Boy leaders, not just at the kind of local North Carolina level, but some of their you know chair members who are running their national um, uh, chapter. So Popak, what do you think the import of
2: this is? I think it's another example that you and I talked about of this pressure of the Department of Justice <clears throat> over the last 14 months, finally beginning to bear fruit at the upper, upper levels as they continue to you know, bring the noose in into the tightest segment, which is going to be the Trump administration, the Trump uh, campaign, and um, those that assisted the insurrection. And the only way you do that is you take down... And you get cooperation from people like participants and leaders for the Proud Boys, the First Amendment Praetorians, the Oath Keepers, and all the rest. Once they go, it's, it's a house of cards. Then the whole thing falls, and you're able to start prosecuting, indicting, and prosecuting uh, the top of the chain. Let's let's keep faith. Eight hundred uh, more, almost eight hundred arrests. We have three hundred. Um, uh, you know 300 people that are facing trial convictions and are and are participating and now we have this one and we're going to talk a little bit later tonight in the pod about Ali Alexander who was one of the main leaders of stop the steal um, and and worked closely with elected officials but when you you have this is good for for two primary reasons you've got a leader uh, who is involved with the proud boys and cooperating and coordinating in the obstruction who is now going to cooperate willingly facing criminal jail time with the Department of Justice. That's one. And two, he's going to be convicted of an obstruction charge. So that answers the question that some of these Trump appointed federal judges have been asking, hmm, is obstruction really the right count here? We've already had three or four who have gotten convicted by juries or have pled guilty to that very obstruction charge. So again, I want people here's the patience aspect. Every day, the Department of Justice is working this case with its thousands of people involved, from the frontline prosecutors to the investigators. They they just asked Congress for for enough budget to bring in 130 new lawyers, as you talked about last week, that'll be assigned to to the Jan 6 uh, issues. Every day, this pressure. 247, 365 is pressure on someone who's not sleeping well at night and is going to have to make a decision whether to try a case and lose, as we've just seen in the last three weeks, or cooperate with the Department of Justice and hope for a lenient sentence. And those are good things in prosecutions and will lead ultimately on the apex to the top.
1: You know, and as that pressure is applied, you mentioned Ali Alexander. You know, we're maybe going to talk about him later, but now is as good of a time as ever, you know, who was a leader of the Stop the Steal uh, rally, which I don't like even embracing their names. He was a leader of the insurrection, um, one of the leaders of the insurrection. But he said that he is cooperating with the Department of Justice, that he is cooperating with all of the inquiries. But what he basically says, and this is where these radical right wingers, though, to me, also just show how weak they are, you know, in the fact that he basically said, I wasn't involved in any of the unlawful and illegal activity. All I did was wanting to, you know, throw this rally. I got the permits. I was trying to actually have a legitimate rally. But all these other people, they were the ones who acted out of control. And I I just set up,
2: I set up a bake sale it was just, I got the permits I got the lemonade I didn't do anything that led to the insurrection and I renounced the res- the insurrection
1: but that's what the applying of the pressure ultimately does because if you are one of these proud boys, if you're one of the people who spoke to Ali Alexander, if you're somebody like, you know, a Don Jr. or someone in Trump's inner circle who are having these conversations and he's essentially throwing you under the bus, you know, for his own self-preservation, it's like I had nothing to do with any of this. All I thought we were doing was we were going to have this simple rally, you know, on stage, people were going to give these great speeches. And whoa, all of a sudden an insurrection happened, this would lead them to say, you know, I got to flip on Ali Alexander. So that's what these DOJ tactics are designed to do. And they're designed to put pressure on people.
2: Here's my problem with Ali Alexander, but I want to get your opinion because you often have a a certain uh, different angle that makes, makes this conversation that you and I have every week really, really interesting, even for me. I read the press release that Ali Alexander came out with that he gave to Politico in which he said, I'm cooperating, I'm not a target. Now, what is he cooperating with? Let me just remind our listeners and followers. There is a Department of Justice-led grand jury impaneled in Washington, D.C., that witnesses are going before and giving testimony. So for that, that answers once and for all the question, what is Merrick Garland's Department of Justice doing about the leaders and getting close to the leaders of the insurrection, not just the 800 people that attacked the Capitol, which are also important? And the answer is, he's got a grand jury impaneled. They're looking at the fake electors. Issue submitted to the battleground states. They're looking at the planning and organizing and communication between the, um, camp, the Trump campaign, the Trump inner circle, the White House, the Meadows of the world, the, the Bannons and others sitting in the Willard Hotel, and what finally happened at the insurrection. People like Ali Adams are in imp- Ali, Ale- Ali Alexander are important because they're not in that inner circle and they're trying to save their own bacon. Here, as you said. Now, here's my question for you. In his press release, he says, I really did not coordinate with with the Proud Boys. I really didn't coordinate with any elected officials. Although we know we know for a fact that he was in communication with Mo Brooks, Paul Gossar, and Andy Briggs, all all Congress people. That was his press release. What is that? Is that true? is that really what his testimony behind the the, the 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 confidential secret door of the grand jury is going to be and why would he put that press release out in advance because they're liars, Popak. <laughs> <laughs> See, I like that angle. That's your angle. These people are the biggest
1: liars in the world, and they can't tell the truth to save themselves. These are these are like just loser people, you know, who have risen to the highest levels of government because there was a biggest loser in the world in the White House in Donald yeah. Trump who surrounded himself with losers like Ali Alexander. I do you mean, think knows- in the
2: grand jury, though, he 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 notwithstanding his official press release, you know, the signal to the rest of his cooperators, don't worry, I'm not going to throw you under the bus. But when he's in that hot seat being cross examined by a U.S. attorney, do you think more information comes out?
1: I do. I I do think more information will probably come out when he does that, but he'll also probably be. You know very obstructing in his conduct and you know we're going to be talking later about the sanctions that tish james is seeking against trump you know who basically treat all of our processes and procedures the trump's and his ilk um as a joke and they basically put their middle finger towards our legal system in, in every way. And so in that case, we're going to talk about the Trumps agreed that they were going to turn over documents and they were going to turn over records in connection with her subpoena um, that. Remember, that's the civil case that's taking place. It's a civil fraud case that's being brought by the AG for him inflating and deflating you know, different tax liabilities where it suited him um, either to get dejections or to get loans in, in, in various areas. But then he turns over no records and says, I have no records. And so if you do a document request, like please turn over your tax records or please turn over and you say, I have no records, you know, no. obviously, you I have no records whatsoever after agreeing to turn them over. I mean, you're just putting your middle finger up in the process. But we'll talk more about that. But I do think Popak, he's lying. They always lie in general. But when they're there in court, one of the things that we've always seen Thankfully, and this is one of the reasons that Republicans have wanted to destroy our court system. This is why the, you know, the Trumpers particularly want to attack judges, because it is this one location where truth still doesn't always win, but at least the process that's created there exerts a level of pressure where the truth can come out. And so when we've seen the Trump big lie lawsuits, those were just laughed out of the courtroom. When you see the Trump judges basically trying to throw their conspiracies in these federal courtrooms pretty much on a bipartisan basis. Still, they've been laughed out of of it. Now, that's the wildest of the conspiracies. Now, as you get to other issues that are seeking to undermine our election, you know, very sadly, we've talked about this on Legal AF after Legal, Legal AF. It's found a very sympathetic ear in radical right justices, but at least some of the real QAnon stuff, and it's really hard to even say this as a lawyer, at least the QAnon stuff hasn't made its way into the courts yet. But nonetheless, there's been a, ra- a lot of radical right stuff that's but, made it. And, but
2: to, to your point, which is well made, the pressure, it's easy to be a tough guy or a tough person on the courthouse steps, giving a press conference, middle finger press releases, interviews and all that. But when you're sitting in the courtroom for three weeks being prosecuted and they bring your children in to testify against you you become a blubbering idiot in front of a jury. So it's easy for Ali Adams to say, oh, I don't know anything and I'm not a target. As soon as they put the screws to him and he's looking at liberty or no liberty if he doesn't tell the truth or if they prosecute him, worse worse for him and best a gift to the FBI and to the Justice Department is he lies under oath, which is a whole nother count of a criminal indictment against him for lying under oath in the grand jury or otherwise. So, you know, he's he's playing with fire here. If he thinks his press release is going to get him any mileage with the 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 line prosecutor who's prosecuting the case, he's going to be like, oh, wh- what's the press release say? All right. Sit in the box. Swear yourself in that. Look over there. That's the grand jury. Now give your testimony. And, and, and have, remember, it's not just the, just to remind people what this process is like, any kind of cross-examination. It's not like you just sit there and listen to them blabber for an hour of a narrative. It's cross-examination. Let me read for you this statement you made. Let me show you this video of you. Let me show you this recorded phone call of you. And then you can, then, then you can explain to my questions, so you know, like I said, all these ridiculous press conferences by the husbands and wives about how innocent their their uh, their mate is, all falls by the wayside when they're under, they're facing the the barrel of the of the full weight of the U.S. Department of Justice.
1: You talked about facing the barrel. So I guess that's an easy layup to talk about (laughs) Donald Trump's barrel, his toilet bowl in Mar-a-Lago, where I mean, this was this is true, Popak, though. A lot of uh, people at Mar-a-Lago were reporting that the drains were getting clogged. And people in the White House were saying this, too, that the drains would get clogged. And when the plumbers would come, they would find all of this paper. And it turns out that it seems a lot of this paper that was in the drains and in the pipes, uh, was confidential, top secret documents that Trump would either eat. He would eat the documents. I mean, you can't make. I mean, like no one reports this. Like it, it's. It, could you imagine? So Maggie
2: Haberman for the New York Times did. It's coming out in her book.
1: It's coming. Well, yeah, saying it's coming out in her <laughs> book. Congrats. It's going. It's very sarcastic, Popac. Thank <laughs> you that she saves that for her book. But could you imagine? if like president bill clinton or obama or george w bush you know would literally just eat their documents you know or when you know bush would go to his ranch or you know clinton would go where would clinton go again what was the where, what was the uh,
2: clinton went to i mean where did he where did he well, where, where
1: did he take his where breaks at what was the where camp david
2: did he go back to little rock
1: he'd go to camp david all the time so if you oh, go to camp, camp david, david yeah. Um, you know, and and Obama would go to Martha's Vineyard, whatever, they would just eat documents. And (laughs) it's really wild. Um, But we've learned and we've talked about this on Legal AF as part of the Presidential Records Act Too, the presidents are supposed to take their uh, documents and turn them over to the archivist, who we now know all about the archivist, like a position that really we shouldn't have to know unless we, you're We should never know. Never we should really never know, know who that is. Right? About the archivist, because the process is supposed to be very mechanic. You turn over- mm-hmm. These records, um, but here Trump brought the top secret records to Mar-a-Lago. Apparently, was ripping them up and eating them and flushing them down the toilet. So the House Oversight Committee, in addition to the work of the January 6th Committee, though, um, are you know probing. You know, I guess you know these these words are maybe not be the best for this, but are doing an investigation into uh what's going on with these 15 boxes of white house records that trump took to mar-a-lago and so representative carolyn maloney the chairwoman of the oversight committee she reached out to the archivist to get answers and the archivist responded to her and said, we can't answer you at this point because of guidance that we've received from the Department of Justice and Representative Karen Maloney, a Democrat from New York. She represents a district in eastern Manhattan. You know, she was upset about that. The House committee was upset about that. And they said, well, you know, you, you know, you know, we don't want the DOJ to be obstructing our investigation, you know, but ultimately the DOJ is the one who are doing a criminal investigation the house oversight committee can conduct its oversight functions but basically at the end of the day they just issue reports and so this led many people to believe um and rightfully so that the doj is investigating and they're asserting uh, an investigation objection that we see Take place a lot in cases, not just at the DOJ level, but there are sometimes in cases that I have popoc that may involve law enforcement, to where I'm representing a victim of police brutality, or I may be representing a whistleblower, and we're subpoenaing records, and then I get an objection back from the DOJ saying, "Well, hold up, we're we're looking into this," or. We, you, you know, we can't respond because of a current DOJ investigation. Now, the letter back doesn't say it was a DOJ investigation, but it leads many people to believe it. So Let me ask you first, Popak, Representative Carolyn Maloney and the Oversight Committee, you know, led by Democrats, though, the language they use by almost accusing the Department of Justice of obstructing them do you think that was kind of a poor choice of words there in the sense that the media, you know, in today's day and age, you know, the media headline is House panel Justice Department obstructing Trump records probe. And that's not what they're doing. But I'll say this. And the media is the media is screwed up in general. We always talk about how horrible the media is um, and how the media. But. I think as a politician today, you have to be a little savvier with the letters like the DOJ. What they're doing is in your interest as well of getting and seeking the ends of justice. And you have to know if you send a letter like that, the dumb shit media today is going to write the dumb shit headlines that are going to accuse you of accusing the Department of Justice of obstruction.
2: I think the reporting is pretty clear. The FBI has, con- has started an investigation, which means reports up the Department of Justice, about 15 boxes of classified documents that went to Mar-a-Lago. The FBI got really into it, so the reporting has been, because of reports that that the, the National Archivist, in recovering the 15 boxes, and we hope all of the 15 boxes, how does the archivist really know What's sitting in drawers or drains at Mar-a-Lago that wasn't turned over to them. I mean, again, you're relying on small
1: good, intestines.
2: Right. You're relying on good faith, which doesn't exist and shouldn't be and shouldn't be given to the counterparty that you're dealing with as the national archivist. But assuming they feel like they were able to recover all 15 that went out, I don't know how they knew exactly what went out, and got them all back in inventory, the National Archivist reported. There's been reporting that top secret, the highest level of classified documents are in the boxes that kind of piqued the interest of the FBI, the Department of Justice. And it's been reported that they are doing an investigation. I get the Carolyn Maloney and the Oversight Committee are doing something also. But wouldn't we rather the Department of Justice look into it? Not probably not to prosecute Trump, although it could, but to look in just as they looked into the emails for Hillary Clinton and what happened with those servers to look into this issue and determine whether there should be a criminal referral of anyone involved with the Trump administration in the decision to take the boxes to Mar-a-Lago and maybe up to Trump, who really knows. I'd rather have that than another another report out of some oversight committee in Congress. But as you said, this is not unusual. In every, every civil matter or congressional investigation takes a back seat to criminal investigations by and large. They go first. That's not unusual. I don't know why Carolyn Maloney was so surprised by that. But And I'm not sure, but of course, there's no inventory of what's inside the 15 boxes. But remember, if the oversight committee is one thing, that's to do with presidential records. Jan Six has to do with, you know, is there anything in the 15 boxes that's really going to help the Jan Six committee? I don't know. Maybe there's stuff in there about the conspiracy that Trump had with all the others to obstruct and to stop the peaceful transfer of power. Maybe they'll get them eventually. I'm, I'm sure the Department of Justice and the FBI is not going to keep them forever from the, from them, but they are, they are evidence now in an ongoing criminal investigation. So it stays, it stays there first. I think that the word choice to answer your earlier question was poor.
1: Yeah. And I think the, well, I think the taking those boxes was its own independent, criminal conduct as well that i'm hopeful the department of justice is looking into but i would again pause to reflect on what the department of justice has done this is in the history of the department of justice probably the most complex time-consuming and voluminous amount of cases that exist now for all of the people who say well Why does Merrick Garland not going after Trump right away? Now, you have a right to a speedy trial under the Constitution, and so imagine though if you brought the case immediately, immediately against Trump without having built the case that is being built now from the lowest levels to the mid levels to the kind of higher extremists in the Proud Boys organizations, the illegal the illegality is a multi-pronged plan. Shockingly, and we'll talk about it shortly, that plan was set forth in the text messages by Don Jr. on November 5th, three days after the election, two days after the election. We knew, or... Don Jr. likely knew that means that they were going to lose the election. And in fact, the plan for January 6th probably began months in advance. I think a lot of people actually, I mean months before. But people aren't even looking at the conduct where when Trump had COVID. Remember when Trump had COVID, he hid that he had COVID and he did the debate with Biden and was literally trying to kill Joe Biden at a debate like no one talks about that no one even talks about that as a thing but Trump and his lackeys did everything including trying to infect his political opponent with COVID at the time And we'll go talk about these Trump text messages, though, where they set out the multifaceted plan. The plan involved these, you know, phantom and unfaithful electors. The plan involved January 6th style insurrection. The plan involved all of the wacky John Eastman things about having the state legislators rule. All of the things that were being discussed, as Judge Carter said, when he said that it is more likely than not, this is the federal judge in California's Central District Southern Division, When said it was more likely than not that Trump engaged in criminal liability, engaged in criminal conduct, engaged in obstruction, that this was a coup in search of a legal theory. And we see that in Don Jr.'s text message.
2: You, you know, if you if you go back to the research, if you take the Wayback Machine, the hashtag Stop the Steal and that approach was over a year before the election, led by people like Roger Stone and others. Why? A, (laughs) they knew that because of COVID, certain state legislatures were allowing uh, a lot of mail-in voting, which they know favors the Democrats, that there were changes in the absentee ballot laws close to the election to account for COVID, um, and worried about that and the impact on the Republican electorate. A year before the election, they were talking about. And you, you guys can look it all up. They were talking about stop the steal, a steal that hadn't even happened yet, an election that hadn't even happened yet. So, so Don Junior's revealed text messages, which I guess have now gone right Ben to the Jan 6 committee.
1: Yeah, that's how it got it, revealed. The C between him to Meadows. Yeah,
2: yep. right between him and Meadows is is unfortunately a later link in a longer chain. That started a year before the election when because they were never going to leave office except over their cold, dead fingers and hands. And I guess that for people
1: were, who wanted, yeah. you know, the, the the criminal prosecution of Trump earlier, would you have wanted him to be prosecuted before those text messages were on Earth? No. I mean, is that what you have wanted? Like so you get to cross examine someone and you'd want to do it without those text messages and without all of the voluminous documents that we have. That's why discovery and litigation is so critical. We're going to talk later in the pod about discovery in litigation and Trump's obstruction of discovery in civil litigation. But you need to get your documents. You need to take the depositions. You need to get the testimony. Um, And it isn't a surprise that Trump is in a circle and his lackeys don't want to give this testimony. They don't want to appear before bodies like the January 6th committee, where if they had nothing to hide, you would think they would want to speak in front of them. And so the podcaster, Steve Bannon, I don't like the framing former Trump advisor, just because you may have worked for him for a little bit, doesn't give you executive privilege, despite the argument that Steve Bannon and others tried to advance, that his executive privilege, just simply being a friend of the president gives you executive privilege. That's basically the argument. But the federal judge in uh, D.C., this Judge Carl Nichols, a Trump appointee, right, Popak, Judge Carl yeah, Nichols? he's
2: a, a Trump appointee, but just, to, you know, he he does come from a very well-established, I think he was a Wilmer Cutler, a very well-established white shoe firm in Washington. He was known by his peers to be somebody that called balls and strikes pretty much down the middle, even as an attorney. So yes, he was picked by Trump, but he was never seen as an overtly political choice, as opposed to just somebody who was a who was a Republican. And now we're starting to see it because he's making very un-Trump-like decisions about key people like Steve Bannon.
1: And Steve Bannon's argument, uh, one of his central defenses in the contempt of Congress prosecution, the DOJ is pursuing against him. Remember, he wouldn't appear before the January 6th committee. There was a referral to hold him in contempt. When there is a referral, the the Department of Justice still has to act on the referral they have not acted on the referral of mark meadows yet it is slightly more complicated legally with mark meadows because mark meadows was actually the chief of staff of trump and there is kind of a separation of powers question that i think the doj strategically is saying let's focus on bannon first and then we can focus on Meadows and some of the people. I think it's just a timing thing. I truly do. Yeah. And, and two I think, more,
2: Scavino and Navarro have now been referred to the Department of, you might have said it, to the Department of Justice as well. So now you got three that are in the hopper, but the Bannon trial is going to be in July.
1: But Let me give you, I mean, we've talked about this before. So for people who are saying, well, why aren't the DOJ acting on Meadows? Why aren't they acting on Scavino? Well, the people who actually work in the executive branch, at least have the ability, whether it's valid or not, to assert executive privilege. All privileges have exceptions. If it's not in furtherance of like the executive, like leading a coup should not be subject to an executive privilege, but our constitution and article two places a lot of power, invests a lot of power in the executive. And there are these norms and traditions and strong uh, uh, traditions of executive privilege. So if I'm the DOJ, I think the strategic thing you don't want Bannon to get off the hook with though, is lumping himself with people who actually have potential claims of executive privilege so that the, so that they're not being kind of confused and merged and melded into one argument you know you focus on bannon you still have it's well within the statute of limitations to prosecute these other individuals um merrick garland the doj you know as long as biden remains in president as the president or a democrat in president this doj is going to continue to do its job so it has more than enough time i just think they don't want to lump those issues when you can focus agree. right now on bannon so I you agree. Both-
2: yeah uh, just one last up? thing just one last thing on that and to remind or to tell our listeners and followers, this these will go to different judges. It's not going to go to Nichols because he has the Bannon case. The the, the wheel is going to spin, um, and the clerk's gonna assign the case to whoever's up on the wheel that week, that day for the case. So now the Department of Justice not only has the train fire on one case with one judge and pick their way through all of these complicated issues and and, and uh, White House legal counsel memos from the 1960, uh, from uh, 1998 and all of this, but then they'd have to do it on three different fronts with three different judges, some of which may be less friendly than what Carl Nichols has been so far.
1: No, absolutely. And so what Bannon's defense was going to be, Um, Was I was following the advice of my lawyer who told me that I have executive privilege, who told me that I don't have to respond. And so that is why I don't have the intent. I don't have the mens rea, which is the mental state to have been guilty of the crime of contempt of Congress if I'm just following the advice of counsel. And U.S. District Judge Carl Nichols said, no, that's not the case. And that is not an appropriate defense to a contempt of Congress charge. You
2: know, it's interesting because it is in certain jurisdictions and in certain federal uh, circuits but Judge Nichols said from a 1961 precedent in the D.C. Circuit, which is binding precedent on him because he sits in the D.C. Circuit, and there since there has not been a U.S. Supreme Court decision that overrides it, just because another circuit like the Southern District of New York or the Northern District of California might take a different position, he said, the, my district has spoken, and it's 60-year-old precedent. And it is not a defense. And the only thing that the government has to prove is improper intent, that there was a deliberate intention not to comply with the order of Congress. And you're not going to be able to offload that and delegate that to your attorneys and say, it wasn't me, I would have done it. I would have done it. The weirdest thing is that you see shine one of his lawyers at the time. I don't think it's his lead lawyer any longer, but I don't did you see one of his lawyers at the time in an interview about this had said, of course he followed our advice. He's willing to comply as soon as, as soon as he was ordered by a court to do so. Well, there's no court order that's going to come out. There's going to be a contempt finding in July and a jail term, but this guy's even understanding of the process Like, sure, as soon as a federal judge tells me to send the documents over. Nichols isn't going to tell him to do that. Nichols is going to tell him whether he goes to jail for a year or not.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: One little area of concern that I have here, knowing that Nichols is a Trump appointee, and his analysis of citing this 1961 case is to basically, though, I think signal, hey, my hands were tied here. I'm following the precedent as I have to follow it here. That said, if precedent changes, he doesn't say this, but, you know, if precedent changes, um, I may not have to follow it. And so the D.C. Circuit Court is not going to interrupt their own precedent that they've set. Um, We will have to see what the you know, if this makes its way to the Supreme Court after trial. after After trial trial. after trial and that's an important point Popak. the timing of it if you want to explain that to our viewers
2: yeah it's not there there are things that ben and i work with every day which are called interlocutory appeals which is sort of what it sounds like it's in the middle of a proceeding you get to step away from the proceeding the trial proceeding for a moment and go to an appellate court to get some sort of ruling it it happens more than people might might uh, think but it's not going to happen on a defense decision about whether someone has a defense or not, that is up to the trial judge. It may be an appealable issue, an error that could be reversed on appeal, but only after the trial is completed. So after a jury comes back, I think this is a jury trial, after a jury comes back and let's say convicts Bannon after they're charged and given a jury instruction about this is the law and this is this is what intent means, this is what willfulness means, and, and he's not gonna be able to put on a defense, now I've I've and that's it. The jury then returns a verdict. If they don't like the verdict, they can they can move to appeal to the you know first to the D.C. Circuit, which will probably comply with its precedent, and then to the U.S. Supreme Court. He'll ask to stay out of jail while that's going on. It'll be up to Nichols. Maybe that's where the Trump connection comes in to decide whether he stays out on bond or not, or on uh, or 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 if he has to go right in while he's waiting on appeal. He'll probably be. He probably won't have to go to jail. Uh, And then, um, uh, you know, once once you go through all of that, uh, you know, he's going to get sentenced to something up to a year. So we're going to have to really follow this. It'll be a you know, it'll be one of our summer events around our holidays or vacations. We'll be talking about the Bannon trial.
1: I'm excited to talk more about the Bannon trial and excited to talk about Don Jr.'s text messages Popak, there's a lot of news that comes out, but I think these text messages are really one of the most damning piece of evidence in the case that's being built. But before talking about the Don Jr. text messages, I want to talk about one of our partners. It's Smith A.I., Uh, And clients demand an instant response. But now more than ever, businesses are spread thin. If you're losing leads from visitors to your websites or missing calls that could grow your business, you need to delegate those frontline conversations to the best virtual receptionist service, Smith AI. Smith AI provides businesses with award-winning virtual receptionists who handle your calls, chats, and texts to unlock new business at a fraction of the cost of hiring. in-house staff. Now, I I am a uh, customer of Smith AI. If you go to my firm's website, you can check it out if you don't believe me. If you go to garagos.com, you'll see how the Smith AI works. This has really revolutionized the way my law firm does business and anyone who goes to the website is greeted by this virtual receptionist who asks if someone has a case, what their case is about, um, you know gets the facts and these virtual receptionists are great. The virtual receptionists are also bilingual, which I think is you know incredibly important. They speak multiple languages but I mean for me, I've noticed instantly like the ability to kind of capture leads. And so like if you have a business and people are going to the website and you know, it takes people, the science behind it, like before they click contact, you know, they may just get bored or move on. But the moment they go to your website, you know, the Smith AI will jump in. And start having this conversation with them and ask them why they're visiting the site or what they can do. And it's been incredible. And they do it on the web and they can even do it by phone seven days a week. And it's, you know, whether it's their 24 seven phone service, their 24 seven live chat service, they even answer texts and Facebook message and they integrate with your preferred software. So Salesforce, HubSpot, Calendly, Zapier and thousands more. So even though you're not involved in every call, you're always in the loop. And as I mentioned before, they have English and Spanish. Spanish speaking receptionist that will block spam for free, including all those annoying sales call. So work interrupted, run your business with less stress, get more leads from your marketing efforts. Smith AI pays for itself, and then some with all the new clients, their receptionists help you win. I can vouch for that a hundred percent based on how it's helped me and my law firm. Never miss another lead. Plans start at just $240 a month. I mean, think about that. Like, you know, it's, it's significant. You are a much
2: better colleague since you started using Smith AI. I will just leave it at that. That's why
1: many people are saying it is the secret (laughs) to business growth and client happiness. I would also say small business owner happiness as well. And our listeners will save $100 when you sign up using our promo code LegalAF at smith.ai. So you don't go to .com. You go to visit smith.ai, read their five-star reviews, and be sure to use our code LegalAF. That's L-E-G-A-L-A-F. AF to save $100 at signup. Don't let another day go by. Try Smith AI. Go to smith.ai and then type in legal AF as the code. No matter what your business is, I promise you this will be hugely, hugely helpful to your business. And now let's talk about Popak Don Jr.'s text messages these don jr text messages the january sixth committee has in their possession they've dutifully been subpoenaing records and getting these records and in these text messages don jr seems to just basically lay out the plot he lays out the plot with unfaithful electors meaning like literally what we've now seen the slate of fake electors that these radical right legislators have appointed to basically certify the election results in favor of Donald Trump when Donald Trump would lose the state and then submit those to Congress to try to have those certified. And we see the plan of trying to have the uh, members of Congress object to the certification process so it could get thrown to the legislators. and. There's, a, there's one thing that he writes in these text messages that's like just so eerie, but so true. Where Don Jr. basically says, we control them all. We control them all. You know, and I think he's referring to the legislators. He's referring to the Republican members of the Senate and the House of Representatives. He's referring to the electors. He's referring to the Proud Boys. But that, and that message, the time it took place, we talked the last time about the guilty conscious uh, jury instruction, and we talked about whether the gap in the phone log of Trump's phone log, which was missing. Right? It seems like years ago. Last week, we find out that there's missing. Just think about if you're Popak, just think about if you're giving this opening statement or the closing argument and you're trying to talk about a guilty conscious just in the past two weeks.
2: Yeah. Talk about the act
1: itself. We talk about so they are deleting and we have missing phone logs from the time of the insurrection. In addition, two days after the election, when there was still counting taking place, you had Don Trump Jr. go through all of the illegal efforts that they were going to take because they knew from the outset, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, That the only way they could get Trump elected was by overthrowing a democratically elected president in Joe Biden. Why else on the fifth before the results were even counted? Would you start talking about all these illegal machinations? Wouldn't you just be talking about, hey, we're going to go through the process that's in the Constitution? If you really were going to actually do follow the law. So that's why Popak from just a from that jury instruction that we talked about, about guilty conscious, about the conspiracy, the time, not just what's said in the messages where they lay out all the illegal things I just said that they were going to do. And we know they're illegal. But two days after, before the results were even before the results were even called for Biden.
2: Wow. Yeah, this is all. There must be a fight in the Department of Justice and Maine Justice to be like who's going to be the prosecutor for Donald Trump and the family um, in that next wave of prosecutions. Because as you as you just laid out, it is a target-rich environment of evidence that's coming out like on a daily basis through the Gen Six Committee and through other through the subpoenaing process and the grand jury process of the Department of Justice and through all the other places that we've talked about. These are all feeder feeder pipelines, you know, the Letitia James pipeline, the Alvin Bragg pipeline, the Fonnie Willis in Georgia pipeline, the new FBI investigation about the 15 mixing boxes, and then the Jan 6 committee um, with this one. Yeah, it's very, you're very hard pressed to uh, say, I don't have criminal intent when your own son named after you, who's in your innermost inner sanctum before the election is even over and certified is already laying out the plot. Now, no one thinks Don Jr. who's basically the Fredo of the Trump crime family came up with all of these ideas. So obviously people like Eastman, John Eastman uh, and Bannon and others and Sidney Powell's of the world and Giuliani's of the world had already created a blueprint for how they were going to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power and try to keep daddy Trump in power. And this is just Trump Jr. tweeting it out, texting it out. He didn't, he's not the architect of it. He's not bright enough to do that. I've seen his YouTube videos. He's, he's, you know, he's not bright enough for this, but he, he is dumb enough to have disclosed it in a text message, not on a burner phone, to a member of the inner circle of the White House staff and chief of staff, Mark Meadows. These people acted with impunity, Ben, as if they never, none of this was ever going to see the light of day. And maybe it's what you started this segment with, which is their belief the coronation of Donald Trump had been complete and that he had complete control over the entire Republican party basically a fear-based control uh, over the entire Republican Party, and that they would do his bidding. And this was just Donald, uh, Don Jr., you know, what they, you know, what they call a Freudian slip in Washington, right, Ben? It's accidentally telling the truth. And so accidentally revealing or intentionally revealing the entire plot that was given to him by some other smarter people, you know, at the very, very inception and on the timeline that this prosecutor that you've laid out, this hypothetical prosecutor, this is gonna be like item number one. Unless they can push it back even further, we'll have to see. Every day is a new is a new bountiful crop of potential evidence against the most senior people here. and And this is going exactly in the order that you and I talked about 20 episodes ago, 30 episodes ago. You don't start with Mark Meadows and work your way back to the guy with the fire extinguisher. You start with the guy with the fire extinguisher. Then you go to the security forces of Proud Boy and the First Amendment praetorians and the Oath Keepers. And then you get the elected officials who held the door open and gave them the blueprint. And then you get to the Meadows and then you get to Scavino and then you get to Trump and the entire family. That's the way a prosecution works. That's what we're seeing.
1: And that's the way kind of life works. I mean, I mean, think about it (laughs) like would you want to do the most complicated aspect of your job the first day you were hired. I mean, just think about it in the like, think about it in those terms. Like if I were to go take the bar exam without taking a class in law school, I'm going to fail the bar exam. Why would it be any different if I was going to prosecute Trump without having the records?
2: You know what? You know what? My boss told me when I took that job at the Wall Street firm, and I was the global head of litigation on the third or fourth day. He came into my office and he pointed to uh, somebody who was in the office services a uh, janitor department of the company. And he said, see that guy? I said, yeah. He said, that guy knows more about this organization right now than you do. I said, that's true, that is true. So I wasn't ready at that particular moment, although I did have to make some big decisions relatively early on there. But yes, you you, you don't want, you're not ready. And we're gonna talk about like when Ketanji Brown Jackson, our new Supreme Court justice takes uh, her seat after this term is over at the end of June or July and gets ready for the start in October of the new term. Look, we we love her. We think she's going to be great. It's going to take her a little bit of time to get acclimated to the workings of the Supreme Court and build relationships. Even Stephen Breyer said it took him three full years to figure out what the F he was doing. My my paraphrase before he could really start having an impact on the Supreme Court. Not it's not going to be day one for Katanji Brown Jackson to prove your point.
1: See, but that with Katanji Brown Jackson, she's gonna have to like unlearn good habits, is it's kind of a different <laughs> type of learning. You know, I mean, she has all of the qualifications, which we're going to go over. I mean, like she's literally the most qualified person to ever take that position, but when you take that position at the supreme court what i mean about having to unlearn great habits and great things is that when you have colleagues like alito and clarence thomas who's like literally an insurrectionist like when you have people like kavanaugh you have people like amy coney barrett and you're trying to persuade them in the small ways that you can you have to kind of you have to Your qualifications of being a great person, you almost have to figure out how you deal with these wackos, these radical right extremists who have been put on the court. But let's we'll get there in a second. Let's talk about this uh, New York AG Tish uh story which is a uh you know an, an interesting one i suppose but i i want to approach it from a different angle so tish james i guess i'm on a, a first name basis i just call her tish now which you know when, when if tish james ever comes on she's like wait what are you doing calling me tish um, new york <laughs> attorney general tish james though requested that trump be fined ten thousand dollars a day for not turning over records in connection with the civil Investigation and civil case that they have. This is not the criminal case that is uh, hopefully being investigated by Alan Bra- Alvin Bragg. We'll talk about that um, a bit more, but. In connection with this civil case that was initiated by the uh, New York Attorney General Tish James, his office, this is where there was a fight over the depositions, um, but there was no fight. It appeared over the turning over the documents and turning over the yeah, records. They and,
2: didn't appeal the document side of the case. They only appealed, you know, in their brilliance. They only appealed the deposition side of the case. Trump's lawyers which is now sitting at the First Department Court of Appeals for the state of New York.
1: Which still justice delayed is justice denied there. And that's Mm -hmm. Trump's whole strategy to stretch out these cases to avoid, uh, you know, taking uh, and try to avoid sitting for depositions. By the way, we've talked about in past legal AFs, though, as he files these ridiculous and absurd lawsuits, which are going to subject him to depositions. But that's why, to me, in that other federal case, all you got to do with Trump is the moment you get a lawsuit like that is just put out a document request, ask for discovery, you know, with if he's not going to turn it over. And you'll get the case right. dismissed right they away. Yes, you for know, a
2: deposition a month after you, sixty days after you start. Yeah, time yeah, for no, depos.
1: Just, yeah, take <laughs> take a deposition of Trump right away. But for, you're right. For whatever reason, they did not appeal. They may just be idiots and didn't appeal this because they forgot to appeal the document, or you know, they this was or this was part of their plan that they were going to say, yes, we agreed to turn over documents and then not turn over documents. But <laughs> their deadline to turn over the documents has passed. Um, so now. The One of the tools in the lawyer's toolkit when someone doesn't participate in the discovery. And we've seen this again on the uh, Alex Jones case it was a case we talked about a while ago where he was getting hit with sanctions for not showing up for his um, deposition. But you ask for monetary sanctions. And so here she's asking for $10,000 a day until he complies with the judicial ruling to turn over records. So, Popak, I want to hear your thoughts on this. But then I have a question for you. Is $10,000 even enough? Um, but let's start with your analysis.
2: No. Uh, so, yeah, you've, you've laid it all out well. Um, we've got a judge, Engeron, um, in uh, New York, who's really not is getting fed up with Trump and all of his. And antics, you know, this is Trump having previously tried to dismiss the case because Letitia James was biased and so the whole prosecution should be thrown out and that was rejected, Um, then he shouldn't sit for a deposition, and of course that was rejected and is now up on appeal, but the documents were always going to be turned over. And, and I'm sure the judge is going to say, let me get this straight. You and your lawyers were in my courtroom. We had long conversations about documents. I ordered them to be produced. In fact, I even ordered that you use an independent third-party electronic discovery vendor to go directly onto your servers and go onto documents, download all these things, report to the court how that process has gone. And now, after the time has expired, I gave you an extension. From the big this is the judge talking now from the beginning of December, the beginning of March till the end of March. I gave you an extension, and now your answer is none. You don't have any of the documents, including the tax returns and other things, because you the last time you were at the Trump organization was 2017 and the Trump organization already turned over whatever they had. That's not going to fly with this judge. I'm just guessing here, and that. And you're right, I don't know why Letitia James's office has only asked for a $10,000 a day fine. That's, that's sort of on the low end. I've been involved with cases, you know, when I, I, I'll just, because I can talk about it, it's like 30 years later. I was involved in a case as a young lawyer a firm I will not name that was representing a healthcare company I will not name, where I was put on a plane to California to spend the entire summer. Ben, you were probably in high school, but I was in the summer of 95. I was in LA because a federal judge had ordered that if this healthcare company didn't get its act together and start producing documents in this fraud case, um, she was finding them and it was then five thousand dollars a day that company freaked out because that's a lot of money and got me on a plane and i fixed it and we got all the documents produced in short order that was one of my early my early and victories here ten thousand dollars to this guy is nothing this is like a rounding error this is like his uber bill for the for the month for the organization so what don't don't steals that's from enough. people yeah that's the issue it's right? steals he steals from steals? people yeah so it, the interrerum effect, the, the the scary effect of this is not gonna be enough. The judge has more power at their disposal to find them in contempt. The first level of contempt is civil contempt. Do it, I'm giving you one more week at 10,000 debt, or I don't think 10,000 is enough, it's $25,000 a day. And you pay, you pay the extra time and the attorney's fees related to Leticia James's office bringing this motion. If you don't do that, the next thing that goes down the next tool in the toolbox for a judge is criminal contempt. And you, and, and people are like, well, I thought this is a civil case. Yes, but if you violate and flout the orders of a court in a contemptuous way, a contumacious way, as we like to say, you can then get ratcheted up to criminal contempt. And criminal contempt is do it or you're going to jail. Not going to jail for the underlying issue that Letitia James is investigating. You're going to jail because you have, you have um, flouted and violated orders of this court. Now, I don't think he gets that far. Do you, Ben? You can only play this game so long before a federal judge says, grab your toothbrush and go with the bail if you're going to jail.
1: Yeah. You know, the part here that bugged me actually was at $10,000 a day with a little over $3 million a year um, and Trump's view of things, you know, in his mind, well, you know, the worst case scenario for me, if I want to hide my documents and avoid this is, you know, three and a half million plus, you know, a year, I'll just do two rallies, steal from my people, you know, and then, you know, and then throw it over or I'll rack up a bill for, you know, you know, whatever, $15 million over a number of years, and I'll appeal that and I'll appeal that and I'll appeal that and I'll just throw it on my kids when I'm gone. So, but, but, but I, you know, I think we need to follow it. But if ultimately at the end of the day, remember, this is the civil case though, you know, which has different kind of consequences, you know as you mentioned there is you know potential criminal contempt referrals but in the civil case you still are talking about monetary fines monetary sanctions but here's what I do like I like that Tish James though is steadfastly pursuing this she's tenacious about it and it's kind of constantly on him you know to you know to produce records well well, that's why
2: some people and I've I've read some of this reporting some people are suggesting that the prosecutor who could take over the case from Alvin Bragg, if Alvin Bragg's current PR campaign that he launched on Thursday, we're going to talk about next with press releases and interviews with the New York times editorial board um, to try to save his career. um, It doesn't, isn't effective. Tish James, even though she's on, she's the attorney general and generally has only civil powers She does have criminal powers in two distinct areas that implicate Donald Trump. One, she can bring criminal tax prosecutions in the state of New York, that her office can do, and anything related to organized crime. So if she wants to bring an organized crime slash criminal tax case against Trump, her office is empowered to do that under the executive law of the state of New York. It's not talked about. She's trying to stay in her lane as, as the civil side, letting Alvin Bragg to do his job. But if Alvin's not doing his job and Tish has it out for Trump, which we know she does in a good way and in and a, and a muscular prosecutor way, she could take over.
1: Let's talk about Alvin Bragg for a second, um, or maybe a few seconds. Um, the Alvin Bragg PR tours, probably what you'd want to call it, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, after his top uh, uh, private prosecutors who were hired in his office, special prosecutors um, who were, you know, very qualified individuals, left you know, at least one of their resignation letters, uh, Pomerance's resignation letter uh was leaked and so he had claimed that alvin bragg was not going to be prosecuting trump was not going to be following cy vance's um uh, a more aggressive approach we'll say of of having the grand jury return an indictment which is what cy vance had told pomerantz to do um and to get and uh alvin bragg though uh initially denied that uh, he was shutting down the investigation. And this week he went on basically a PR tour. He gave interviews on this past Thursday with media and issued a press release in addition to speaking to the media and basically saying that um, it's not the case that the investigation has been shut down. And uh, no matter what the outcome is, he will uh, make sure that there is a uh, uh, transparent, uh, uh, explanation to the public about the decisions that were being made. Do you think Alvin Bragg's press conference popok was meaningful here, and uh, is it going to in any way change the narrative, or did it kind of sound like what someone would say to buy time before being dropping fired or being fired or dropping
2: or being fired? This got circulated. the The press release got circulated to you and me. And you know what I what I wrote you back and the other person back. I just wrote, "Oh, Alvin, Uh, you know this is." um, There's also reporting that the the Daily Beast was about to drop a very unfavorable um, uh, investigative piece. And on the eve of the article, he came out with the press release and their article was going to f- focus on something you, that we haven't spoken about, which is not only that Carrie Dunn and Mark Pomerantz resigned, but that he Alvin Bragg seems to have reassigned Solomon Scheinrock, who was the lead prosecutor. He's That's the person doing the dirty work every day. that doesn't get all the glory of the Pomerances and the Dunn's, but it's really the important person to the investigation that Apparently, that person, Solomon Scheinrock, a lawyer in their own right, has been reassigned and is not on the case any longer. You know, so that's not a good sign. Now, Alvin tried to say in this media tour on Thursday, well, there's new witnesses that have been interviewed and new evidence has been reviewed. And some people have said that's just a continuation of the original subpoenas and it's not a new a new uh, dive by the new prosecutors into new evidence and new witnesses. But, you know, and he did a lot of, spent a lot of time trying to reestablish, rehabilitate his career, his credibility, as a prosecutor, his bolstering his own credentials. Spent a fair amount of time talking about his prior prosecutions of public officials, that he was the lead prosecutor against the Trump Organization or the Trump Foundation in the past when he worked in the attorney general's office. So he kind of gets it and nobody should doubt his ability, his credentials, his rigor, but everybody's doubting his credentials, his ability and his rigor, including the governor of the state of New York. So I think the audience for that was the governor, and others that are calling for the, for the head of Alvin Bragg and to be removed as the prosecutor for Trump and try to buy some more time. And you're right, he did see, prosecutors are not obligated to announce to the public why they are or are not prosecuting. If they're prosecuting it's an indictment. If they're not prosecuting, they don't have to say why they're not prosecuting. He has said I will tell people you know of course if he's prosecuting it's an indictment, I will tell them if I'm not prosecuting. I don't know. I think he's buying more time here for himself politically is all I read there. Um, I'm not taking any cold. I take very cold comfort from believing that the case against Donald Trump has gotten any better with Alvin Bragg now firmly in charge of it than it was before with Mark Pomerantz and Kerry Dunn. And, and the one last thing I'll leave before I turn it back to you, Ben, is that career prosecutors and really educated followers of that office And of prosecutions in general, and I want to get Karen's opinion about this when I have her on, when we co-wank her on Wednesday, is that the lack after almost two years of a cooperating witness from within the Trump organization has really hampered the prosecution. You know, early on, Cy Vance, Alvin Bragg's predecessor, indicted the Trump organization. We shouldn't forget this. Trump organization is indicted. They're going to be tried for a crime related to tax fraud. Weisselberg, Alan Weisselberg, the longtime uh, CFO, indicted. But that did not lead to anyone else in the organization because of the reasons you've outlined in the past, Ben. This is not a real organization. This is a bunch of people with Trump's last name. Sorry. Sorry, Ben. My mother decided to call during our pod. It stays in the pod. Does it stay stay in in the the pod. pod. That's aggressive. I stay in touch with my mother. I'm
1: going in the pod. Keep
2: Go, it in Go, the, Go, the pod. Go, mom's um, keep, keep it in the pod. Sorry, mom. I'll call you right after the pod. So um, th- the lack of cooperating witness that has come out of the woodwork, because as you've said, the Trump organization is not a real organization. It's a bunch of people that look like Trump and have his last name. N- none of none of them are going to flip. And that has been a real hamper to the to the prosecution for Alvin Bragg. It's the only credit I'm going to give him is that he's got a tough road to hoe. It's got to be done with all kind of documentary evidence um, but Mazers, that was the one I asked you about. Mazers totally dumped on their client on the way out and said all of our uh, all of our financial reporting for the last 10 years is completely unreliable, basically in the face of Letitia James's investigation. And I mean that's an incredible. So, so you do have the auditor who has turned on them. It's not like there's no cooperating witness. Um, the, the uh, Mazers will. But it's, yes, it is a difficult prosecution. But, you know, you're, you're taking down a president of the United States. It was always going to be hard. It was always going to be hard. As I've always
1: said, the Trump organization is not a real organization. I mean, if you really think about it, you know, the ultimate character of like a bad guy, of a bad person, like you couldn't make it more caricature of like what Trump is, you know, someone who literally is a trust fund kid who inherited all of this money, who created a fake organization that they call the Trump organization, which in most of its endeavors that it actually did, um, where it tried to do more than just put money Into real estate in Manhattan, which has always been going up. When they've actually tried to engage in any other business, they've lost. They've gone bankrupt. They're the only family
2: in America that lost money running a casino.
1: Yeah, and I mean, look. To me, we'll we'll keep following up with what Alvin Bragg is doing. Uh, But was always going to be a tough prosecution, and it's a important and necessary prosecution that people like Trump, these megalomaniacs out there who are skirting the law, even if they don't have true organizational structures, like they deserve and need to be held accountable. But let's leave our legal efforts with a positive note. Katanji Brown-Jackson is confirmed as a Supreme Court Justice now. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, a historic historic day. In terms of qualifications, we've talked about this over and over again, the most qualified individual on the Supreme Court. And uh, I'll have uh, uh, our graphics guy, Salty, pull up the graphic for those um, watching, but I'll just explain the graphic for those listening. It's this graphic that shows all the other Supreme Court justices who are on the bench. And it shows you know did the person go to public high school check Ivy league law school check supreme court clerk check public defender check sentencing commission check district court judge check court of appeals judge check and that doesn't even go into the fact that you know she did trials she worked at a big law firm you know she literally did everything that you can do and had a untainted record
2: and she's A an incredibly perfect. intelligent, humane, and graceful individual. That alone should put her on the Supreme Court.
1: You know, yet you only had three Republicans. You had uh, you had Romney, Romney Murkowski, and, and, and Collins. you had and Collins were the only three Republicans who voted in favor of Ketanji Brown Jackson. Which just goes to show you. That for those who voted against Katanji Brown Jackson, I think we all know, you know what it is, what what it is that they care about, and where it is that they are siding well, for when you vote for someone like Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, who have like very little qualifications.
2: Look, I'm going to give some other stats since we're doing stats here, which are stats. fascinating. Stats. We're all, about, we're all about stats today. Out of the 50 U.S. senators, only three. Are African, black, are African American. Only one sat on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that's Cory Booker. In the history of the Senate, this is crazy. There's only been eleven in 233 years. There's only been eleven African Americans out of 2,000 Senate seats, which is 0.05 percent. The current the current um, makeup is 0.6 percent of of senators of the of the U.S. Supreme Court. 108 out of 115 U.S. Supreme Court justices have been white men. That's 93%. This is the first time we'll ever have four women on the U.S. Supreme Court, all but Democrat, Democratic appointees. So if these things matter to you, the stats that I just outlined with Ben, these things matter to you, then elections matter to you, and then making sure the Democratic um, slate of candidates is elected matters. Winning the Senate matters. It's not just Warnock and Ossoff winning in Georgia. Although without them, we would not have Ketanji Brown-Jackson. They were as as important as Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, the first black vice president or black, any president presiding over the Senate and uh, confirming her her being voted in as a Supreme Court justice. But these are all really important things that start with um, getting the right people elected into office at the Senate level, so that the the judiciary, which is controlled by the Senate, is firmly in the hands of adults and progressives. That's really, really important. Now, the one thing I want to mention, and I want to get your opinion on this. One thing, of all the crazy things that Ted Cruz and the others did, um, and there were a lot of crazy things, Uh, In fact, you know, he held up that Baby is a Racist book. That was now number one. racist baby, yeah. Yeah, that's number one on Amazon right now. Because of that, (laughs) they they bought that book. That's great. Thank you, Ted Cruz. But the one thing I thought that she should not have fallen into the trap of is that he got Ketanji Brown Jackson to say that she would recuse herself from the Harvard um, affirmative action uh, admissions case that's coming before her when she's seated in October. There's also a related case dealing with uh, the University of North Carolina, which is actually a little more of an expansive case, but I don't think she should have agreed to recuse herself from anything. Why? Because she's black and went to Harvard. I mean, what did you think about? She took the bait on that one and I was surprised. Uh, What did you think about that?
1: I think she had to have known that she was going to get asked the question. Yeah. And I think, the thinking behind it, though, was with unclear what Mansion would do and unclear what Cinema would do. I think there was a worry there that not answering the question in that way could, you know, could change a Murkowski, could change a Romney, or could change a Collins, even though. I don't think that would be the case, but I think they huddled up behind the scenes and played the question safe and said, "Look, on that question, at the you know what it appears anyway is that the vote, the Supreme Court is going to dismantle any type of affirmative action, you know, any semblance of the of how it's even calculated. We've talked about this on prior legal AFs. It, they seem poised to do that." And so, it's more important that we get you in as a Supreme Court justice now yeah. than that than that potentially become an issue. And so, I think they game play. I think they they role played it and ultimately came I, to that conclusion. I, I think you're right. I, I don't think she should have done it, but I think that's what happened.
2: I, I agree with you. I think you're right. I'm right on the right on the money. And just to remind everybody that that follows the show closely, Breyer, not Katanji Brown Jackson, is still in his seat. And will remain there for the remainder of the term through June or early July. It is Breyer who will vote on who will be involved with the writing of the opinions or dissents about Jackson versus Mississippi, the abortion case, the Second Amendment case about concealed carry and expanding those rights under a New York a New York case, and whether things like the environment matter. Whether the EPA has the right to to, uh, do rulemaking related to climate change. That's all going to be still within the basket of Breyer and his participation. He'll probably be on the losing side of all of those issues and maybe writing his last dissents there. It will then be for her with a clean slate of cases that start in the, the new term, including what we just talked about, the affirmative action cases, Which, unfortunately, look like there's probably enough, just to preview it, there's probably enough votes to dismantle colleges using race as a consideration in balancing their incoming class. 20 years ago, seems like 100 years ago, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, in writing one of the last earlier affirmative action cases, predicted I hope that in 25 years, we won't need affirmative action in place in higher education and race blind admissions will prevail. Well, if the Republicans get their way, she'll be wrong by five years. It'll be 20 years since she wrote those prophetic words in her opinion. And now with the first black woman justice to ever be on the Supreme Court, I can't think of a more epic decision that she's going to have to be involved with hopefully turning a voter or two to preserve the ability for universities to, um, let's be honest, not have like 100% white people sitting in the seats.
1: We talk about this on the beginning of each legal AF that we are breaking down the most consequential legal news of the week in ways you can understand because these consequential legal issues Ultimately, will become and are the most consequential political issues. These legal issues, the government's intervention and intrusion into your right to choose, into the ability. Of couples in their private lights to have contraception into the composition and making sure that we have diverse universities um, focused on all on climate and all of these issues. We need our law to uphold what America's values truly are, which is decency, which is love, which is the melting pot, which are all the things that I love about this great country. And that's why we have this Legal AF show. Special shout out to our sponsor, Smith AI. Here is a favor that I ask of our uh, Legal AF audience. If you're watching this on YouTube, where we get hundreds and thousands of views, please also subscribe to the audio of Legal AF and give a five-star review wherever you get the podcast. So wherever you get podcasts, search Legal AF, subscribe to it, leave a five-star review because that ultimately helps us with the algorithms there. And while we crush on the simulcast and we do great and we're one of the top Fifty always of legal commentary in the world. We're number one in Micronesia. We're we're always at the top in the U.S. Though of legal commentary of all news commentary. Um, we do what we do ask for your help to make sure you subscribe there um, on the podcast to help bump those numbers as well. And sometimes it's helpful if you also listen to this while you're taking a walk in addition to watching it, so you can do it on both uh, platforms. Also check out the Legal AF and Midas Touch merch store at store.midastouch.com. Store.midastouch.com. We have great gear for you there. We'll see you next time on the next Legal AF where Michael Popak and I will break down next week's legal issues. We've got a ton, a ton of huge Huge, huge consequential legal cases coming up, and we're excited to share our breakdowns with you then. Michael Popak, any final words?
2: No, another amazing I learned so much in our podcasting. I do, and, and I learn a lot with Karen too. And uh, it's been my pleasure and my honor to be here every Saturday with you, your brothers, and with the Midas Mighty and Legal AFers.
1: See you next time on Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas
2: Mighty.